1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, shocking news. I just found out that if you hunt with a firearm, you're a sissy. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're a sissy who hunts with firearms and you're looking to take an elk with a 375 h H&H, you need the right bullet. What do I recommend? Find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Whether you are a sissy hunting with a firearm or not, we're going to find out what a real hunter is and the right bullet to use. And let's just start off with that one. The 375 H&H question comes from one of our patrons, Cameron. Good day, Ron. I would like to use my Winchester Model 70 375 H&H Magnum to hunt elk. What bullets do you recommend? I have always used Sierra Game Kings and Nosler Acubons in most of my hunting rifles with great success. This year, I harvested a small mule deer buck with a Hornady ELDX 110 grain out of my 25 That bullet did its job. However, it broke apart and did more damage than I would have preferred. Sample size of one is too small to make any determination. They shoot very well after stretching my cartridge overall length from 3.14 to 3.240. So, Cameron has a lots of questions here and advice. Let's see what I responded with. This was back oh about four days ago. Hey, Cam, there are many great bullets these days. For your 375 H&H that'll suffice, I have taken elk with everything from simple cup and core bullets to partitions and bonded bullets and all copper hollow point bullets. My go-to these days are hammer, hunter, shock hammers, and Barnes TTSX and LRX bullets. The 270 grain hammer in 375 has been flattening everything from waterbuck and Niala to buffalo and elephant. I take whitetails with copper bullets as narrow and as light as 50 grains in a 224. Stepping down a weight or two from the traditional cup and core bullet weights is my standard practice, so if I would choose, let's say, 180 grain in a 308 for elk with a traditional bullet, I would go with 165 to 150 grain in a copper bullet. I drive them faster, there's less recoil, and I get equal or more penetration without the meat damage. The only sacrifice is wind deflection. There's a bit more of that, but one can always compensate for it. So that was my recommendation for Cameron, really with a 375 H&H for elk. Almost any bullet is going to suffice, especially if it's 300 grains. You got plenty of weight there working for you. But I do like those all-copper bullets for Whether they're designed to stay in one piece like the barns, when they flare open, the the pedals stay on, or the pedals are designed to break off the way the hammers are, they just both seem to work darn good. It's just effective every time for me. So uh, that's kind of what I've been working with lately. All right, here's another uh, of our patrons. Uh, This is um, Drew. Thanks for your fast response. And I agree with you 100%. We were commenting earlier about some other topics, but he got on the topic of uh, squirrel hunting, small game hunting. He says, I enjoy squirrel hunting and I average about 100 a year, mostly using the 22 long rifle. But once in a while, my 410 gets lonely and wants to tag along. The 757 Mauser would be a fun uh, rifle to play with. I'm leaning towards a 257 Roberts or a 223 WSSM for my next rifle. I'm more of a Weatherby fan, and that was passed down to me from my grandfather, who he had Weatherby Mag for his license plate, WBYMAG. I find it amazing what what Roy did and when he did it, especially. I was blown away by your thoughts on long-range hunting. But in a good way, I have several friends who want the PRC cartridges, and the first words out of their mouths are. So I can shoot at 800 yards. And that scares me a little. I'm afraid with all the hype that they're giving people the wrong idea. Well, they may be a more accurate long-range cartridge. The guy behind the gun might not be. It just seems that the advertising is making people think, yeah, buy this cartridge and you automatically become a long-range sniper. Well, I wrote back to Drew and said, yeah, those are a lot of squirrels to clean. A hundred squirrels? Listen, I love hunting and eating fox squirrels, but I'm not so crazy about skinning them, especially not a hundred of them. Say, this long-range shooting stuff, it is an appeal, I think, to the lazy side of human nature. I mean, we all want the biggest and the fastest and the baddest tools in the box, but we forget that the bigger reason why we need them is to enjoy the hunt. But if we ambushed something from 800 yards, we kind of cheated ourselves out of the hunt. In my 56 years of hunting, I've taken perhaps four game animals beyond 500 yards. I was able to get closer to all the rest. Usually much closer, and this includes mountain sheep and goats, and pronghorn and mule deer and African plains game in some pretty big, wide open country. Marketers know the weak spots for most of us buyers, though. So if you promise them a laser guided missile, they're going to buy it. (laughs) So that's kind of my take on the long range shooting stuff. But he's right, you know, it comes down to the guy behind the rifle. I just always advocate for maximizing your hunt and your challenge. Um, But that's going to take us here in a little bit to the guy who thinks that if you hunt with a rifle at all, you're a wussy. Let's let's just jump to him right now. He says uh, his name is Keith. He's not a patron. Pull this off of, he must have sent a comment in that the team pulled up. But he says, yeah, I understand that hunting with a gun is something only a sissy would do. I am 72 years old and I hunt with a bow. I consider camping to be a 20-mile-a-day hike with 30-pound pack. Otherwise, you're a sissy. <laughs> if you fish with a spinning rod, it's a sin against God. You have to fish with a fly rod. Then you're one with God. Only sissies hunt with guns. And then there's about two dozen exclamation points. This guy is serious. <laughs> All right, I confess. I'm a sissy. <laughs> But hey, listen, Keith, more power to you. 72 years old, and you're camping after a 20 mile hike with 30 pounds on your back. That's quite an accomplishment but i don't think you're going to get a lot of people to join your religion here <laughs> i mean many of us enjoy a good brisk hike and we enjoy the challenge of a backpacking hunt it gets us back in some remarkable country but it is a lot of work and uh, takes a lot of dedication but more power to you and i understand the bow hunting end of it too if i just got done harping about not shooting 800 yards away because you want to enjoy the hunt more use a bow when you have to really get close. So I get it. I get it. But I wouldn't call all of us firearms hunters wussies because, I mean, that goes back a long way in history because there's a lot of sissies out there (laughs) and I'm proud to be one, I guess. Now here is uh, something from Patrick and he says, Ron is one of the modern outdoor writers that is really reminiscent of Jack O'Connor. I appreciate that, Patrick. I've heard that a couple of times before. I'm not sure I deserve it, but by golly, it's sure fun to get a pat on the back like that. And uh, Patrick goes on. He says he loves my style. And then he says, keep doing what you're doing, Ron. Hey, I think you should do a fan question and answer sometime, either a live stream or an in-person live video with people to ask questions while they drink whiskey, smoke cigars around a campfire. (laughs) You are my go-to outdoor YouTuber. Okay. This was a shameless plug to get on your program. Well, it worked, Patrick. You're on. I wish we could sit around a campfire somewhere like Africa. I don't know if I want to smoke cigars with you, but I could drink a little bit of whiskey and uh, relax around that fire and trade some stories, cause that's a, a big part of the hunt. And I've noticed as I've gotten older, it becomes a more significant part of the hunt. It's just really starting to enjoy that camaraderie. It used to be, I was all about the hunt and getting the animals and just maximizing my opportunities. But boy, nice relaxing time after the hunt around the campfire is getting to be a lot of fun. So I appreciate that. Now here's something from Juan who says, why are you always so down on the 308? You never have anything good to say about 308. Well, guess what? it's 308 winchester week we are having an entire week of shows about the 308 winchester we give it its due we shoot nine different rifles all chambered in 308 i get extreme 308 overdose poisoning so so check out my regular ron spomer outdoors channel and you're going to see a lot of good things about the 308.
0: with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Wait, Winchester. All right, let's see what uh, Betsy has pulled up for me. Something from Bruce. He's asking, is it a requirement to join your Patreon community to get a question answered? No, it is not, because I just answered this one, (laughs) and you're not a patron. (laughs) No, what we do with Patreon people, of course, is uh, address their questions immediately. A lot of these questions I don't see until just now, because my team goes through YouTube channels, comment sections, people send in a, a website and ask questions, and they pull them together from all over. I uh, directly see the Patreon questions. Patrons will write in to me. I get it right away and I answer them right away. But I, who knows when I'm going to answer qu- other questions. If they, they hand them to me like this and I can see them and answer them. But I just don't have time to go keep track of all of my YouTube channel's comment sections and such. So you, know, you don't have to be a patron, but it's a lot easier to get your questions answered that way. Now, this is Daryl, who looks like he says I got something wrong here. Ron, slow down. Okay. You keep saying three o three, and I'm quite certain you mean to say thirty o three. Quite different calibers. Post-World War I, not a few doughboys were convinced that they had fought the war with Springfield and 17 Enfield rifles chambered in 30-30. And there was no convincing them otherwise. Also, you got to remember that the Winchester sold more model 1895s in 3003. And they had built up a run of muskets hoping for military sales. Yeah, that's right. I remember reading about that several years ago. I think they sold a bunch of them to the Russian army. So the 1895 lever-action Winchester rifle was a Browning invention. It was the first one that had a vertical stack magazine uh, up under the lever. It looks kind of goofy. It's just right in front of the lever and uh, doesn't look like your standard Model 94 style, but it allows you to shoot long, pointy bullets for more efficiency. And they beefed everything up so you could shoot higher pressure cartridges like the 30-odd six. And they chambered it for the .30-03. And apparently they kept it for quite a while. Um, But they did sell some to the Russian army, too. So apparently they had built a bunch of these rifles, hoping to sell more to militaries. And then they had excess. They had to sell them to civilians. So the 3003 must have been the cartridge that the uh, Russians wanted. And then that's why they had to sell them. Uh, All right. And he says they kept them chambered and sold them into the 20s. Uh, commercial ammunition production resumed in the 1920s to keep feeding those 1895 lever-action rifles. So the 3003 apparently lasted longer than I thought. Uh, but of course, you know, the 030 was the cartridge military designed to replace the 3040 Craig in 1903. And it used a 220-grain round-nose bullet. Didn't go very fast, wasn't very flat shooter, not very efficient, more weight than they needed. And that was, that was the era in which the Spire point bullets were coming into vogue. And so we looked at the eight millimeters that the Germans had and said, Yeah, we need to lighten up. And they changed things up with 150 grain bullet and then made it to 30 six instead of the 3003. And, uh, you know, fairly similar, but the bullet change and a little bit of a length change in the neck, no big deal. But the 3003 then only lasted for three years. So not a lot of it ever saw action. I don't know if any of it ever saw action in any kind of a conflict. It was always 30 out six. That was our World War I cartridge. But anyway, it's nice to hear some of these things about like, okay yeah, they still had some rifles out there on the civilian market and they made ammunition for it into the 1920s. All right, thanks for that, Daryl. This is someone named Sitz. You are all wrong on the 300 hammer. Mm. The 300 hammer was developed by Bill Wilson. Of Wilson Combat as a hog round. It duplicates and in many cases exceeds the performance of a 3030, but it uses spire point bullets for better ballistics. Makes sense? In a 16 inch barreled AR, it makes the venerable 3030 feel like a pig in the field <laughs> as it is shorter, handier, lighter, and far more accurate than any lever action gun. Mine consistently prints three shot Seb. MOA groups with many of the bullets that I load. 100 to 25, 125 and 135 grains is the sweet spot for this gun uh, with a range of about, no, with a velocity of 2,400 to 2,500 feet per second. It is a reloader's cartridge for sure, and it's based on the 223 Remington Within its 200 to 250-yard range, it is superior to any hunting cartridge in the AR-15 platform. No real recoil or report, and it's great for deer and hogs. Well, I don't know, Seth, uh, if it is the absolute best in the AR platform. I think you're going to get some kickback from several people on that one, but let us let those folks comment and uh tell us what they think theirs are. I don't know the ballistics of all those AR-15 style uh, cartridges, uh, especially of the larger sized ones like that. But I'm thinking that AR-30 uh, 30 Remington, 30 Remington AR cartridge didn't last long. They kind of abandoned it. But boy, as I remember when it was first out, the ballistics on that thing were pretty impressive with a 150 grain bullet. And you could use that in obviously an AR-15. So, and and then there are some nice six fives out there now too. And there's the six, eight uh, SPC, but we'll let people comment and see if they can't blow yours out of the water. But you're right. um, Bill Wilson did do that. I heard that he had a ranch down in Texas that was overrun with the usual feral pig thing. And he wanted this round to do that. So I had said earlier that I thought the hammer was set up for, for shooting the big heavy bullets subsonic, the way the uh, blackout was not the case. This one was always designed to shoot supersonic and pretty much duplicate or a little bit better than the 3030. 30 So that's it. Good information. Thanks for sending that stuff in, sets. This is someone called Sierra, Mr. Mountain. A quick internet search says that the U.S. SOCOM Uh, adopted a 6.5 Creedmoor as a precision rifle option in 2018. Okay, that goes counter to what I had said about, ah, somebody had said that the military adopted the 6.5 Creedmoor as our new standard infantry round. I said, no, I don't think so. And I am right on that. But it was apparently adopted by one branch of the military, at least the SOCOM, Special Operations Command Group, uh, as an option. So it's out there sig won the next squad auto rifle contract with the 277 fury the 6.8 by 51 and that is a 308 Winchester size case neck down to 27 but given a steel head to take more pressure to get your velocity higher but the uh, 277 fury has a proprietary case yeah just hybrid three. 3- three-piece cartridge case, steel case head, brass body connected by an aluminum locking washer inside. Supports the higher chamber pressure of 80,000 PSI. That is right. So apparently, yes, some branches of the military are using the 6.5 Creedmoor for some special purposes, but the new official infantry rifle is going to be the 6.8 by 51, or that high-pressure 277 Fury. And what that thing is doing with those high pressures is in a 16-inch combat barrel for convenience They're getting traditional 270 Winchester performance you'd get from a 24-inch barrel. And that's because of that higher pressure. Whether or not that's going to be available for civilians is still debated. Uh, I've read several times that it will be available and then some that say it won't be available. I don't know. Um, but right now, I don't think you can get it. We will see. Okay, now here's something about scopes from Hendrick. I respectfully disagree about your scope assessment. To me, the first and most important aspect of a hunting scope is its ability to hold its zero and to track with great precision. Bushnell's innovation of no external fogging on lenses is a wonderful gift to hunters in cold weather. Clarity, brightness in a hunting scope, those are very nice, but that is what I look for in a good set of binoculars, the main tool for spotting game. I agree with you there. I do not advocate looking for game with a rifle scope. You end up pointing a loaded rifle at somebody. That's not safe. Use your binocular. And then he goes on. Scope optics for hunting need to be good enough to put the reticle on the target and clear enough to properly see the animal, but target quality at massive cost increases is not needed. Specific target scopes indeed need very good glass. Now, I agree with Hendrick on this. I have always said that holding zero was job one of a scope. I always say it's a glorified front sight. If if it doesn't do that job, it doesn't matter how brilliantly sharp and bright it is. (laughs) You can't hit your target. So as long as, like Hendrick said, as long as you can see the crosshair on your target, see the target clearly, so you're shooting the right thing, it doesn't matter if you don't have the world's greatest, sharpest, brightest glass in your rifle scope. Not that I mind having it when I do. You know, it's a bonus, but first, Consistency holding zero. As far as tracking, if you're dialing corrections, you do want the tracking to be consistent. I mean, you don't wanna say dial, I need to dial four minutes of angle to aim properly for this long distance shot. And then suddenly your scope decides it's only gonna do three or jump to six. (laughs) That's not gonna work. But if you're not dialing, you just turn your turrets to get zeroed and then you leave it alone, That it really doesn't matter if it's precise or not. You know, they say one quarter MOA for every click at 100 yards. Some end up being a little less than that or a little more than that. So you do have to kind of mess around with it while you're getting zeroed. But once you've done that, if you're not going to be dialing every time you pick up the long range shot, it doesn't matter if it tracks accurately or not. Okay, let's see what else we have here. Nothing more on these papers. Looks like we get to go to the list that the team pulled up here and emailed me. Yeah, I'm going to go to Michigan, talk to Dan. Dan says, do you have or sell grouse wings? <laughs> this must be a fly tire or something. No, um, actually, I do have a couple of grouse wings out in the barn. Uh, I just just shot a grouse <laughs> a few hours ago, so it's hanging. Um and it has wings, but I'm not selling them. It is, as much as I know, guys, you'll want to check this with your fish and game agencies, but as much as I know, a game bird that is legally taken during the season, you can sell the feathers from that, but you cannot sell feathers from any songbird or raptor or any of the birds that don't have a hunting season. Uh, it's just kind of a federal overarching law that that is a fine of $10,000 minimum or something like that. It sounds crazy. But the idea is people would then say, hey, I found this eagle feather lying on the ground, so I'm selling it. They're worth quite a bit of money. Well, then they could say, hey, I made so much money on that found feather. I think I'll go find some feathers with my rifle. And they'll shoot a bird they shouldn't shoot and they claim, hey, I found it. So that's why they had to make that law. That's a little bit over the top when you first read it. But I can understand it to prevent that kind of cheating. So, but yeah, if you're looking for grouse wings, pheasant feathers, quail, any of the hunted, legally hunted species, you should be able to find those. Um, I'm not selling them, but I'm, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if you could find some hunter who'd say, I'll save my wings for you or the tail feathers or whatever else you need. But you need to make a personal connection, I think. All right. Tristan in, ooh, ah, another Australia one. Not just Australia, but Southern Australia. What does Tristan have to say? Hey, I love your podcast, mate. I listened to it for a while now, and it's a wealth of information for every shooter, so keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate that, Tristan. And thanks for listening way over there in Australia. My question is, how come the 375 is the minimum big game caliber in most places? When I've looked at the stats on the 338 projectiles out there, they seem to be a bit more of a better thing. You can, in most cases, send them a bit faster and the ballistics are a whole lot better. I have a 338 Edge cartridge that I use for the big stuff and it eclipses the good old 375 H&H in hitting power and sectional density. Wouldn't they be better at penetration with a higher sectional density as well? So the Barnes LRX projectile in 338 has, uh, in a 250 grain weight, the BC is 0.602 and the sectional density is 0.313. You compare that with the 375 uh, LRX bullet, 270 grain, BC is 0.449 and sectional density is just 0.274. So his point is his 338 bullets going as fast as, if not faster than the 375, has higher sectional density, higher ballistics coefficient, should deliver higher energies on target and penetrate farther. Wouldn't it be better than the 375 H&H? And I have to say, I think so, Tristan. I've done some numbers like this with some 338 wind mags and in many cases, it has all the ballistic performance to exceed the 375. So why is the 375 the minimum and they won't let you use the 338 for some dangerous game in some African countries? It's because, the 375 was established as that minimum way back when they didn't have the 338s to work with, and I don't think they want to or can afford to every time a new cartridge comes along say, "Oops, now we've changed it." Now the standard is the 338 Edge or the 338 Win Mag or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so it's kind of a traditions thing, and it's just sort of set a standard. Um, now some countries will grandfather in the 9.6 by which was it the 9.6 by 62. I forget exactly which one it was, but it was uh, not a 375 H&H, but it was used so effectively over there that they grandfathered it in as acceptable. So, yeah, that's the answer, but you're certainly right about the BCs and and the sectional densities. You know, it's one of the things that we as budding ballisticians will learn eventually is that the bigger bullets, the wider bullets aren't necessarily more effective with terminal performance than some of the narrower ones that are driven a little bit faster and have a a higher sectional density for deeper penetration, which is what you generally want. You have to kind of judge these things on their merits, not just on bold numbers. So a good one. That was a good question. uh, I don't think you're going to get to go to saw hunting Buffalo with your 338 edge, however, but you probably could in uh, Australia with your water Buffalo up there in the north. So maybe you can try it up up, out there. All right, now let's get back to uh, North America. Go to Utah, where Clint asks us about brass. I usually use quality new brass, but lately- I have had to use once fired brass and I've noticed that the brass is not lasting as long as the annealed brass that I normally use. Would it be a good idea to anneal this once fired brass to make it last longer? If so, which method would you recommend and can you explain why annealed brass lasts longer? Well, uh, I will try. So annealed metal means you've kind of softened it, heated it up, and rearrange the molecular structure so that it doesn't become work-hardened. When you shoot a cartridge and it expands, and then you resize it to reload it, you're squeezing it back down, and it is the equivalent of bending a piece of wire until it finally breaks. You just work hard in that metal, and it no longer has its flex, it has plasticity, and it snaps. So annealing the, the neck and the shoulder of your case is what you want to do because those are getting squeezed up and down and flaring the most. Um, And you do it by heating it to a certain temperature and then quenching it in water. And the old rough way of doing it was to have a little pan full of water um, and then stand your cases in it, take a torch and heat the necks to a guest temperature of, well, that looks hot enough, and then tip them over into the water to quench them. Um, Not real precise. And they've come up with some chemicals that you can paint on the neck and shoulder. And when you heat it, it turns a certain temperature to say, this is the perfect temperature for proper annealing, and then you quench it. And there are probably a couple of other options for doing that. I haven't been doing it. I don't shoot the same loads over and over again enough anymore because of my job and what I have to do with new cartridges and new rifles. I just don't load a particular case five, six, 10 times anymore. So I haven't been doing any annealing, but look into it. It's worth doing if you want to maximize your case life. And there are good reasons to do that. One is the cost of the cases, obviously. Um, The other is once you've got a case perfectly formed and trimmed and just the way you want it the neck size and everything else, you want to keep that, you know? You put a lot of work into making that perfect case and you want it to hang around. So you want to look into annealing as a hand loader. Great, good question. Um, now we'll go to Florida. Martin asks about small game, 22 long rifle or 17 Hornady Magnum Rimfire for small game and practice. I own a 308 Remington 700 VTR for deer hunting, and I'm looking to own a rifle for small game, especially rabbits, and for practice. So which caliber do you recommend? By all means, 22 long rifle for small game the 17 HMR is just too too explosive, too destructive. Even if you target them in the head, which I always do a small game, that's the part I'm not going to eat. And it takes them out right now. Uh, but boy, when I do that with a 17 HMR, you're going to lose the front quarters as well as the head in my experience. Whereas a 22 will just poke a hole through it. And you don't need high velocity 22s to get the job done. I've really over the years gotten slower and slower. And these days, I'm not only using shorts, but I'm off, off, often, I am often using CBs. They're only going, oh gosh, thousand feet per second, subsonic stuff. Um, but, you know, 1200 feet per second, 1250 is kind of the standard for a 40 grain and a 22 long rifle. And that's even a little faster than you need, but take headshots, you'll be fine. The 17 is great for long reach, flat trajectories out to 200 or at 125 yards, I think you can have maximum point blank range on a two inch target out to 125 yards or so. So that's really nice, but it's just too explosive for small game. Great for practice, however, and for varmints. But yeah, I would definitely recommend the 22 long rifle. Good luck with that, Martin. Oh, we're going with James in Shetland. Shetland, tiny rock in the North Sea. Ha ha. (laughs) James has a sense of humor. Uh, I was surprised to learn that the 350 Legend, among a few others, had spaces on the case mouth. Made me think about why the 375 H&H was given a belt to headspace off of. The reason, as far as I know, for the belt was because the shoulder was too small to headspace, but to my eye, the 375 H&H shoulder is bigger than the rim of the 350 Legend. Now, reading this back to myself now, it sounds more like it's an observation than a question, haha. Anyway, keep up the great work. I love listening to the podcasts as I drive to work in the morning. Well, James, you should enjoy this one because you're the star. You are on the podcast this morning. Um, no, you're right uh, on your observation. It seems weird to me too that 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 thin little edge of the mouth would stop that cartridge and use that for headspace, but not just a 350 Legend, pretty much any straight-walled cartridge that doesn't have a rim, like the 45 ACP and the 9mm, those kind of the two most popular ones, Uh, they've been like that forever, and it sure seems to work. But as a hand loader, you have to be careful. You don't want to squeeze that mouth down, make it too thin. With a 45, if you're crimping your bullets, you got to be careful that you don't squeeze it down too far, and you lose the right dimensions for that head spacing. Um but yeah, it works. It seems like it's a pretty thin little area, and the 375 H&H shoulder does seem more than big enough, but you have to remember, back when they were making this in 1911, they were just getting started with bottleneck cartridges, and they didn't really know how effectively that would be, uh, get stopped inside of the chamber using that sloped shoulder of that small size, but Um, I think now you realize it it would probably work just fine, but they put the belt on it and they've been around ever since. Okay, now we're gonna go to South Africa. We are really getting around the globe this time. This is Vaughn from South Africa. You are invited to South Africa to hunt a buffalo. All right, (laughs) I get to go to South Africa buffalo hunting. Thank you, Vaughn. You have two cartridges to choose from, 375 H&H and 375 Weatherby Magnum. Which one would you choose? Ah, I think I get it here. This is not an offer for a free hunt in Africa. <laughs> he is just proposing a possibility here. If if I were going to Africa to hunt buffalo, what would I choose? The 375 H&H or the 375 Weatherby? Man, that's too bad, Vaughn. Bon. I was going to say, I'll take either one if you're buying the hunt for me. <laughs> but hey, if I have to do this on my own, I'm going 375 H&H. Why? Because the 375 Weatherby is too hard to find, this was Weatherby's idea for improving the 375 H and H. And if I remember correctly, all he did was essentially straighten the sidewalls out, take taper out, and sharpen the shoulder. I think he sharpened it to uh, 40 degrees, but it might be 35. But you know, that was kind of the standard for the Ackley improved cartridges that came along. And I don't know what year Roy did this. You know, he started doing his. Is Weatherby style cartridges in the 40s. Um, And I don't think uh, Pio Ackley uh, was Ackleyizing cartridges until later than that, into the 50s. Uh, He may have started in the 40s. But at any rate, the idea was the same just take the taper out, maximize the capacity within that space. And have a sharp shoulder on it. So, with the uh, Ackley cartridges, you could shoot the original in the Ackley improved version of it because he kept the head spacing dimensions the same. He just changed the shoulder angle, but not the head spacing part of it. Whether that applies to the 375 Weatherby Magnum, I don't know. But what you gain from that 375 Weatherby is about 100 feet per second more than you get from the standard 375. So, to me, it's like, ho oh, hum, not that big of a deal. I'm going to stick with a 375 h because I can find rifles, I can find cartridges way easier than I can the 375 Weatherby. Pretty simple little pick for me there. All right, now we're going to go to Oregon where Marvin is asking about Wildcat cartridges. I just finished a 22 284 that we call the 22 Ultramag using a 73 grain hammer bullet around 3,600 feet per second. That is smoking. By the way, the 284 case is my favorite to mess around with. I have a 22, 6 millimeter, 25, 6.5, 284, and 30 caliber all on the 284 Winchester case platform. Ridiculous, huh? I love your videos, Marvin. <laughs> no, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think that 284 Winchester is a great cartridge for this kind of wildcatting work. What amazes me is how few times those have become commercial cartridges. The 6.5 version did, and it was oddly named a 6.5 by 284 Norma, not Winchester. I think Winchester missed the boat on this one, but Norma grabbed it because Winchester obviously wasn't. Wildcatters were shooting at a long range target competition for quite a while, and it's really quite popular. Now I think it's probably going to be pushed out to pasture by the 6.5 PRC, which is real similar, uh, maybe a little bit faster. And it's probably going to take over. Um, But the other ones, like, let's say my my friend Sam Fadala, I'm pretty sure had a 25 by 284 he really loved. And I think he had a 6 millimeter by 284, which is a good darn option. But boy, the 22 version, that is getting down to a real throat burner because you got a lot of powder. That 284 Winchester short case is fat, half an inch in diameter. So you've got powder volume roughly equivalent to a 270 Winchester, which is a lot longer. So that's, gosh, you got a lot of powder in there with a 22 caliber. So you're going to drive it fast as you've showed us with 73 grain bullet going 3,600 feet per second, but your barrel is probably not going to last for a a thousand uh, years But hey, if you want to go fast, you got to pay the price, right, guys? Everybody knows that, whether it's a car or an airplane or a bullet. But sounds like Marvin is having some fun over there in Oregon with his Wildcats. And it is always fun to have guys doing this, coming up with new cartridges, because quite often they become standards. The 22-250 Remington was a Wildcat. 25-06 Remington was for a long time a Wildcat all kinds of them out there. They're just innovators who come up with these ideas and eventually the major manufacturers say, this guy's got a pretty good idea. And then they grab it, put their name on it and you have a commercial cartridge. So <laughs> you having fun there, Marvin. Appreciate the information. Would love to get out and see your 22-284 uh, shoot someday. I bet that is a screamer. All right, that looks like it. Um, I want to thank all of you guys for not only your questions, but also your advice, your, your corrections and stuff, um, clearing things up. I often say, I know a few things about this business, but I don't know everything. And there are some experts out there who just absolutely know every last detail about a certain cartridge or a rifle used in the wars and all this. And we really welcome that information. We're sharing what we know here so we can all benefit from our synergy. (laughs) Putting uh, all of our brains together helps a lot more than depending on this just this old one right here. So hey, I hope you all are having yourselves a great fall. It's hunting season and I hope you're getting out there and enjoying what we have. It's uh, wonderful to be having the opportunity in North America especially to have access to open hunting grounds and lots of wildlife. We've done a great job of restoring our population. So get out there with your rifles even if you are a sissy. (laughs) or just using your bows if you're not a sissy and enjoy that hunting season. I'll see you next time. Hunt honest and shoot straight.